This is Market Currents from Northern Trust, where we explore facts, patterns, and expert opinions to answer today's most difficult market questions. Welcome, everyone. My name is Katie Nixon. I'm the Chief Investment Officer for Northern Trust Wealth Management, and I want to thank you for joining us today. So an issue that's been pretty consistently in the headlines recently is inflation. And there's a healthy debate right now about whether we're headed for a period, perhaps a lengthy one, of much higher inflation in a post-COVID world. At Northern Trust, we've had a thesis really since the global financial crisis that the persistent and really the structural headwinds against inflation, the power of innovation along with the drag of demographics and debt, would offset any cyclical uptick in inflation. And we've been right so far. But the question today is, is it different this time? And will inflation tailwinds take a stronger hold amid massive amounts of fiscal and monetary stimulus? It's a critical question because the feedback loops of inflation run through the economy, of course, but also through the financial markets. So to help us sort through this important topic, I'm so pleased to welcome Northern Trust Chief Economist, Carl Tenenbaum. And Carl, I can't think of anyone better given your experience at the Federal Reserve and in leading the Fed's risk section for four years. And you were very deeply also involved in the response to the 2008 financial crisis. So welcome to the podcast. Glad to join you, Katie. We'll try and figure everything out. We will, Carl. And I just teed this up by noting that the feedback loops of inflation are really important to the economy and the financial market. So I'd love to maybe kick things off with uh, you offering your perspective on why inflation matters so much. Inflation has historically been very important for both market and economic performance. When inflation is high, it's very difficult for businesses to plan. They don't know what things will cost. They don't know what they can charge for them. And they often take a very short-term perspective, which can be very uh, damaging to economic performance. From a market perspective, as you probably better than I do, Katie, high inflation eats into asset returns and is a factor as investors try and anticipate what the best portfolio construction is for them. We've had experiences just in the last generation where inflation was uncomfortably high and it was associated with poor market and economic performance. Fortunately, in the most recent several decades, we've had modest inflation. And that's one of the reasons why we've had some of the longest expansions in our history and some of the best bull markets. I remember coming out of the global financial crisis, Carl, lots of folks were very, very worried about inflation. We had sort of this incredible monetary reaction and policy in response to the GFC. And it, people felt like it was inevitable that inflation would be an outcome and it just never showed up. Why was that? Inflation forces, Katie, sort themselves into two broad categories. Cyclical ones, which occur when we have booms and busts, when we have a recession that creates a lot of excess capacity in the markets for labor, goods, and other things. And until the economy gets back to normal, the prices of those things are usually held down because there's plenty available. Once the economy begins to perform better, prices tend to increase because some scarcity appears, in addition to which the policy reaction is a little less generous and you can see inflation occur in that manner. But the second category are, are the more secular forces, and here's where we've seen a divergence between the experience that we had 40 years ago and the one that we've seen more recently. 40 years ago, the United States was a fairly closed economy. We weren't exposed as much as we are today to global trade, and technology was certainly not the force that it is today. And so cyclical forces really dominated inflation, booms and busts, and the Federal Reserve's reaction to them. Today, by contrast, we are very much a global economy, 
and we have capital and goods and services, uh, in some cases, flowing back and forth very freely. And also technology is dominant in almost any industry that you'd want to name. And both of those things have been disinflationary in their nature to the point where almost despite what the economy is doing and despite what the Federal Reserve is doing in response, we've had disinflation persistently over the last 25 years. So we've coming, we're coming out of this period of very, very low inflation. But here we sit as we're going through an economic reopening, as people are reemerging from their houses and, and getting back to engaging with the economy. We're getting some kind of crazy data, some economic data crawl, broadly speaking, but specifically on inflation. Can you take us through the different components of the recent spike that we've seen both in consumer and producer price inflation? Of course. And to do so, I'm going to take the example of one of the most prominent pandemic products that there is, hand sanitizer. I don't know how many of you remember how difficult it was to get a bottle of hand san a year ago when the demand was very high and the supply was very low. Recently, I was at the store checking out and there was a big stack of hand sanitizer with a sign that said uh, bottle free for the $5 purchase. So clearly what we had was a very temporary imbalance between demand and supply that overcorrected. And the reason I share that example is that we always counsel, Katie, and I know you join me in this, our clients should not overreact to something that is only going to be temporary. One or two data points does not a trend to make. We have some abnormal things going on statistically. First, what a base effect is, everyone, is inflation is often quoted on a year-over-year -year basis. And so you take today's price index and divide it by the one 12 months ago to derive inflation. As that window uh, moves forward, as the two goalposts advance by a month, you lose an old month from the distribution. And what's happening now, Katie, is that in the early months of the pandemic last year, we saw aggregate prices actually falling because we had a collapse in demand. As those come out of the 12-month window, we are seeing an exaggerated set of increases in the prices for some goods and services that has led the current year-over-year -year reading for the Consumer Price Index to a high level of 4.2%, clearly eye-popping. But the other thing that's happening is that we're having bottlenecks for some products, and a handful of them have certainly experienced some very high rates of increase. Car rentals is a great case in point because it captures both the shortages of chips that are stunting auto production. Car rental fleets were thinned as we stopped traveling, and now that we're back in the air or on the roads, they don't have enough cars. You can see the impact of that and the rates that we have to pay in order to drive away from a rental counter. Certainly, there are the makings of a response in supply as the year goes on. And so as you look at the various sectors that are being affected this way, Katie, Again, going back to the hand sanitizer example, if there are profitable opportunities available, supply will usually rise to fill it. This is the source of the Fed's reasoning with which I generally agree that the issues that we're having now probably will not be long lasting and will not factor into long-term inflation. Now, the only area that I would say that I'd be watching in the current spectrum is that we have seen house prices go up as many determine that they don't have to live within 10 miles of headquarters or their offices in order to be effective. I think uh, post-pandemic working conditions are going to allow for more remote participation. If you need a comfortable place uh, to do that, you can move 50 miles away, get more space, pay a lower price, and that's why we've seen the prices of dwellings in some of those markets uh, increase. House prices are not part of the CPI, 
but the rental uh, rates that can be derived from them eventually do work their way in. So I'll be especially curious to see whether we see increases in the costs of shelter, which are the biggest part of the consumer price index. So, Carl, I noted earlier some similarities between this period and that post-global financial price crisis period. And there are some meaningful differences as well. And, and one of the most notable difference is just the amount, the vast amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus that has been injected into the system amid the COVID crisis. And I guess it's the fiscal stimulus in particular that has many worried that the demand shock that we're now seeing might go on for a little bit longer than some think, and that therefore maybe it is different this time insofar as the stimulus went right to households, which is not what happened after the global financial crisis. What are your thoughts on that particular topic? The size and speed of the fiscal and monetary response to the pandemic dwarfs what we saw after the 2008 financial crisis. Fiscal monies uh, appropriated are several times what we had back then. They've been much broader, and the speed uh, with which they reached their intended destination was much faster. All of this, I think, is reasonably appropriate given the different natures of the global financial crisis and the one that followed the pandemic. And the other thing to point out is that a lot of the monies that have been sent out around our economy have not yet been spent. They've been saved. We see a buildup of household savings that is immense. And now that we have a return of entertainment, of, of travel, of restaurants, those monies are going to be put to use because there's pent up demand for them. And we're beginning to see the impacts of that surge in both the broad economic aggregates as well as the sector aggregates that cover the entertainment sector. The issue will be, is the strength of that demand going to be enough to really create permanent stress on prices? Uh, here again, I think if you take the case, let's say of restaurants, I do again think it's likely to be temporary. Right now, the demand for restaurant meals far exceeds the seating capacity. And furthermore, restaurants are just having some trouble in, in some cases getting their cooks and servers back into the restaurants. And some of the costs of that experience are distended from what they will be in the longer term. Nonetheless, I do think that there will be sectors that may be more permanently stressed and will have to monitor them. For now, they seem to have a very low weight in the CPI. And so I am comfortable that the outlook for modest long-term inflation is still one that I would recommend to our clients. So, Carl, you mentioned a few minutes ago housing and shelter. And I'll tell you, I'm looking around my town. For sale signs go up and they get taken down a day later. There are bidding wars. I mean, it really is, is very reminiscent in some ways to sort of 2006, 2007, in terms of the activity level in, in, in the housing market and the prices. And we have average prices at historical high levels, inventories at very, very low levels. Do you think housing is, is a problem right now? Do you think this will be a concern going forward? A few thoughts here. I think we need to recall that housing recovered very slowly after the 2008 financial crisis because housing was at the center of the 2008 financial crisis. A whole series of well-intentioned regulations made it more difficult to finance a home and to complete a transaction. Part of these were intended to protect home buyers from the losses that many of them took, but it also served to delay, or in some cases, mothball a lot of the building plans that might normally have occurred in the last decade. And so we entered the post-pandemic period with a very low inventory of houses for sale and as construction has kicked back up, we've run into limitations in both the supply 
of building materials and also their prices, partly because of supply disruptions have been have been a real challenge. And so as low mortgage rates, were, which are a consequence of what the Federal Reserve has done with its policy kicked in, we had an immense demand for, for housing. Not all of it is new demand. We are seeing important shifts in where the demand uh, occurs. There has been a bit of an exodus from major metropolitan areas like Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, and people are moving further out. And so the greater demand is not in those cities. It's further away where the housing stock was even more limited than it it certainly is in some cities. And so we're going to see uh, continued pressure. The Keith-Shiller price index, by the way, rose to a record level recently, and I think that's something that we need to watch. Now, a bit of uh, of background, Katie. Again, uh, a house is considered by the statistician as, as partly an investment and partly a consumption good, and that's why house prices are not part of the consumer price index. The way that they are factored in, however, is that uh, statisticians try and search around for dwellings that are rented that are equivalent to the houses that are owned. And they create a series that we know as as, uh, owner equivalent rent, which is the, the implicit rent that all of us who own homes pay to ourselves. That responds eventually, but slowly, to rises in house prices. The correlations are not altogether high. So the impact of the current hot housing market, if it comes into inflation, will be something that occurs gradually over the next couple of years. So, Carl, let's shift gears a little bit, because another area that's getting a lot of attention right now is on the labor market and on wages. And the Fed's been quite focused on this area as well, sort of not just getting back to full employment, but also looking through the data to see the quality of the jobs being created. And we've heard recently out of Washington about a potential increase to the federal minimum wage. And we've preemptively seen some really large U.S. companies increasing wages fairly meaningfully. And it's not just in the leisure and hospitality and retail areas that are trying to urge and encourage um, employees to come back to work, but it's even more broad. We heard uh, recently from banks and financial services companies. So when you think about wages and some of the activity that we've seen lately, does this kind of pique your interest around whether we could be in a period of perhaps higher wage inflation and that might feed through to broader base inflation? That's a really important question, Katie. The United States is two-thirds a service economy. So the main cost of production our wages. And so an analysis of where we stand with our labor markets and how much an hour of work will cost going forward is a critical part of forming an inflation outlook. Here's where we stand on the labor market now. Unemployment uh, officially measured has come well down from the peak that we had early last year. But in addition, we do have a number of people who have left the labor force for various reasons during the course of the last 12 months. And labor force participation in the United States is still at about a 50-year low. If you want to look at it from a different perspective, we have about 8.5 million Americans who are working in January of 2020 who are not working now. And that represents a potential supply that could eventually rise to hold wages or wage growth at reasonable levels. Reading the wage statistics at the moment, everybody, is a very complicated thing because of the composition of people who have lost jobs or left the labor force, and those who have remained creates a little bit more of an unusual upward push in inflation. But as you've noted, Katie, as we've tried to heat the economy up, there have been isolated cases where wages or bonuses have been increased in order to lure people back to work. 
I believe that these uh, increases are probably going to be temporary, and here's why I feel that way. As we look at the reasons that people remain working part-time or out of the labor force, a variety of things come up. We have had some retirements in the economy, perhaps a little bit early, but comfortably. We do have families who are with children at home trying to learn remotely. They're looking at the summer in front of them where the kids might normally go to camp or be uh, cared for by caregivers. And those possibilities, perhaps in this post-pandemic world, are still not quite uh, comfortable. And so parents are choosing uh, to remain at home with their children at least until school restarts. We have written uh, often about the importance of getting school reopened for not just the children and the parents, but for economic activity more generally. So I am expecting that labor supply will begin to recover importantly as we get closer to the reopening of school in the late summer. By coincidence, that's also the time, Katie, at which some of the supplemental unemployment insurance benefits will expire. Much has been said and written about the disincentives that some workers are uh, getting because of the benefits that they are still receiving, and some states have taken steps to curtail those benefits to encourage them to get back into the workplace. Again, I think that gradually those issues will sort themselves out and we'll be back to reasonably high levels of labor supply by the fall, which should continue to put a cap on the wages that people are able to earn. Final thought here is that part of the wages that people can earn are based on the prices that their, their employers can charge. Pricing power is breaking a little bit in some areas, but is, is generally still very limited in others. And so wages, I think, which have been under downward pressure or the wage growth, which has been under downward pressure for some time now, are likely to remain there. Well, Carl, I think it's it's really important and it's interesting and, and we'll know much more as we get through September. As you say, this, it's, a, it's sort of this confluence of things that will happen in September between schools reopening and what we're hearing broadly is that schools are going to reopen in person all day. We'll have the expiration of the enhanced benefits and then also, we'll have many more people in this country vaccinated and fears about COVID are another reason why uh, some people have not come back to work. So all of those things should progress nicely over the summer and we should be able to get some more data in September and October that will give us, I, I think, a bit more meaningful information. But let's shift gears again a, a little bit here. You did a great job in sort of helping us to disaggregate some of the spiky inflation numbers that we're seeing now. Consumers are obviously seeing inflation everywhere they look. They look, they're seeing it at the pump at the grocery store, if they're trying to book a ticket to go visit their parents who they haven't seen in a year, they're seeing it in airline prices, they're seeing it on the used car lot, housing prices. So inflation seems to be all around us. And in prior periods, when we started to see inflation popping up, people would start to get concerned that the Fed would intervene and start to tighten policy and curb demand. But this time the Fed is going to take a different stance. Now, this time, the Fed is explicitly signaling confidence that this is a short-term bout of inflation and it will be transitory. And it's also saying that it's going to tolerate higher inflation without changing policy. So with some of the supply constraints set to persist and with demand maybe more robust with a broader relaxation of COVID restrictions, how patient do you think the Fed is going to be? And what do you think the key data points they're going to be looking at are? Katie, let me start with the uh, very important observation that you shared about the inflation that we see. Because of the way our brains are wired, if we start seeing inflation, we begin to filter incoming information and often place more emphasis on uh, the new data that confirms what we are already observing. 
that's what we call a confirmation bias. And sometimes that crowds out the balanced view across prices that might uh, leave us with a more, more benign set of understandings. But the fact is, is that since inflation expectations are such an important determinant of actual inflation in the future, we can't dismiss the perceptions that people are developing and the accumulation of these observations is uh, something that can be threatening. Now, as we look at inflation expectations at the moment, they are higher than they were a year ago by a lot, simply because of where we are in the economic cycle. They're not that much further above where we've seen them in the past. And what also comforts me is that if you look at market-based expectations of inflation over the next two years, they're much higher than market-based expectations over the next 10 years, which say to me that investors understand that some of the stresses that we're observing right now are going to be more transitory than permanent. The Fed is trying to manage expectations. They've actually wanted inflation expectations to be higher. Prior to the pandemic, they had drifted downward in a manner that uh, might have risked uh, deflation, an outcome that some at the Fed, believe it or not, are still concerned about, although I'd have to say that that risk is much lower today than it was uh, a year ago. That said, uh, the Fed is trying to manage something that's very difficult to control. And because of the noise around inflation actually measured currently, Katie, it feels almost as if the central bank is flying through a, crowd at the, a cloud at the moment and won't know what the horizon looks like for some time. And that's a bit risky because the Fed has also announced that uh, it's departing from its past practice and will set policy on actual observations as opposed to forecasts of inflation. Now, that makes sense in the context that the Fed, like the rest of us, has been very poor at predicting inflation, which has been far below what expectations have been for some time. However, there's also the school of thought that if inflation becomes a problem, the Fed does have to act preemptively to address it because monetary policy works with long lags. So there's a certain risk in the Fed's new operating procedure. Hopefully we won't uh, experience the tail of that risk, but if it does uh, come to fruition, the Fed may have to pull back more quickly and suddenly and early than the market is expecting. And that certainly would not be good for investment performance. So, Carl, the Fed has really intervened this time in a number of ways. We obviously taking rates down to zero and then being very active in in buying bonds. When they do change policy, the quantitative easing will be the first thing that is changed. Do you think that will have an impact on the economy, more broadly speaking? More importantly, the Fed will have to manage market expectations so that there are no surprises. We have a precedent from 2013 when then-Fed Chair Ben Bernanke made some comments about the possibility that the Fed would begin to change its policy and the market wasn't prepared for it, producing what became known famously as the taper tantrum. The current Fed is certainly taking a lesson from that and is trying to be very deliberate and gradual in its communication. We can certainly see the threads of preparation beginning in the minutes from the most recent Federal Reserve meeting and in the speeches that are now being given by Fed officials that are beginning to prepare the market for a conversation that could occur later on this year that is aimed at beginning to reduce the amount of asset purchases that the Fed makes on a monthly basis. My own view is that the Fed will actually go through and reduce those purchases uh, by the early part of next year. Now here, that's not necessarily dangerous for the markets, again, as long as it's expected. Katie, one of the things I remember pointing out to our clients in 2013 
is that tapering is not tightening and that merely reducing asset purchases simply reduces the pace of accommodation and does not go into a restrictive stance. So it's not clear that uh, some tapering will mean a, a worse set of economic or market outcomes. But the Fed, having learned its lesson, will have to communicate especially carefully in the months ahead. Right. It's all about setting expectations, Carl. That's certainly very important. The Just the, the vast amount of stimulus that's in in the system right now, the vast amount of liquidity. You mentioned household balance sheets, corporate balance sheets, the Fed's balance sheet. I mean, there's a lot of liquidity uh, sloshing around. And I'm sure as you went through your study to become an economist, you remember those tight linkages between money supply and inflation. And as an economist, really coming out of the global financial crisis, that was sort of the the first lesson that these two things may not be as tightly uh, related as they have been in the past. And here we sit today with even a much larger growth in the money supply than we had post the financial crisis. How do you think as a classically trained economist about inflation when some of those linkages that we've grown to to rely on have, have seemingly been broken? Katie, now you understand why my hair is falling out at a faster rate than it used to. Because so many of the guides that we used to be able to rely on to anticipate how inflation will evolve are no longer useful. Let's take a couple of them. Uh, First, the relationship between growth in the money supply and inflation, which was very powerful 40 years ago, is no longer. In fact, the coefficient relating changes between the two has turned negative over the last 10 years, which says to me, that it's more secular factors than cyclical ones or monetary policy that are driving inflation. In addition, we've, you and I have talked a lot about the Phillips curve relating unemployment and wages and inflation, which is also broken in the midst of global labor markets and technological efficiencies that have really reduced the ability of workers to demand higher wages, even if business is very good. And so uh, you throw on top the fact that we have policy stimulus that is unprecedented outside of wartime in this country. And anticipating how inflation overall will come out of this cycle is very difficult to do. I think the user's guide is that we're going to have to listen to a lot of of different uh, perspectives and also take advantage of the many price indicators that are coming through at real time more so than they used to and try and synthesize that into a meaningful whole Again, though, I think the thesis that we've been sharing with clients, which is that those secular factors that have rendered the relationship between money and inflation less valuable, are still very powerful. And if you wouldn't mind, I'll just go through some of those long-term influences. These also, everyone, uh, were captured in the most recent weekly commentary that we put out that looked at inflation past, present, and future from a variety of different angles. The longer-term influences on inflation are come from globalization, which has been very powerful over the last generation, but which may step back a gear in this post-pandemic environment. Globalization actually was slowing down prior to the pandemic as countries began to question the value of some of the external trading that they did and the impact that it was having on their labor markets and the environment. I think in the wake of the pandemic, Katie, countries are looking inward, wanting to shorten supply lines. And as they do, there is the potential that the cost of some goods and services may rise a little bit from the efficient levels that they had under the global supply chains that prevailed before. Secondly, we have technology, which I think is probably going to accelerate in its influence in the post-pandemic years. It's clear that capital expenditures are resurgent in a very powerful way. On a bottoms-up basis, the CFOs of many companies are saying that they're going to take advantage of a deep think 
in the post-pandemic environment and find ways that work and products can be brought to market in a more efficient way. E-commerce is something that has gotten a broader hearing from a broader sector of our population during the pandemic, and that usually means discipline on prices. And so I think the stockflation thesis, which had technology as one of its roots, is still very much at play. We have demographics playing a role. Our country, like others, is getting older, and demographic trends have not been helped by the pandemic. That has a bit of a mixed impact on inflation. The labor force growth is likely to be uh, much slower in the years ahead. And so you could say that a shortage of workers could uh, increase the influence on inflation. But on the other hand, uh, we do have data in hand that tell us uh, that the retired consumers are much more frugal and that they have to marshal their resources over an uncertain retirement horizon. And so I think that's going to be a bit of a mixed effect. And then we also have really what the long-term policy reaction function is going to be. I think we could be on the precipice of a very different Federal Reserve, which is very much in concert, working in concert with the government as opposed to leaning against it. And with this being a very dovish Fed and likely to get dovish, more dovish in the year ahead with new appointments, the question is, if inflation does raise its, its ugly head, Will the Fed play the disciplinary role in the next uh, five or 10 years that it has in the past, or will they be more lenient in allowing inflation that could get to a level that is more uncomfortable for uh, investors? So those are the long-term trends that we'll certainly be following. On balance, I do think, again, that they favor more muted rather than more aggressive inflation. Great, Carl. Thank you so much. I want to thank you for your insights today. It's so helpful on this very important topic. And I think you highlighted the complexity of the topic. There are more moving parts than ever this time. These cyclical forces, the structural and secular headwinds. But to use a well-worn, perhaps overused phrase, we are in uncharted territory here. So it's really important to be aware of all these issues and be prepared for a variety of outcomes. Now, we continue to believe in our stuckflation theme. Carl, I think you outlined very well the power of some of these structural forces against inflation, these longer-term headwinds that we believe will prevail, and that we think that the near-term upward pressure on inflation will be transitory, given this sort of short-term mismatch between demand and supply. But that said, we really want to make sure that portfolios can withstand this period, even if it's transitory, of higher inflation. And we find that equities in general can perform well in periods of inflation up to about 3.5%. And Carl, to your point, perhaps even higher this time, given that the Fed is resolute in not reacting uh, to a period of transitory and, and higher inflation. So we think equities can perform pretty well. We also include equity-based natural resources in portfolios where research shows a very strong and a positive correlation to unexpected bouts of higher inflation. But even in periods of moderate inflation, it's really critical to plan appropriately because as an investor, you fund your future goals with real dollars. Those are dollars adjusted for inflation. Now, we always create plans that align to this reality, that goals are funded with after-tax after inflation and after fee returns, really triple net returns. So it's important that portfolios are built around this reality. Now, if you're not sure that your portfolio was constructed with this triple net lens, please reach out to your financial advisor. I wanna thank you all again for joining us today to cover this important inflation topic. And again, Carl, thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Subscribe to Market Currents from your favorite podcast app to be automatically notified of new episodes. 
This audio podcast is being provided for informational and educational purposes only and is not meant to be taken as investment advice or a recommendation of any specific investment product or strategy. The information does not take your financial situation, investment objective, or risk tolerance into consideration. Listeners, including professionals, should under no circumstances rely upon this information as a substitute for their own research or for obtaining specific legal, investment, accounting, or tax advice from their own counsel.